You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Art Smart from Who Arted, your guide to quick and easy art history. We're cutting through all that art world jargon that doesn't make sense to anyone because art is for everyone. Welcome to Art Smart. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be looking at screen printing. I can think of no better historical example than the iconic work of the one and only Andy Warhol. When he was in third grade, Andy Warhol was diagnosed with Sydenham's chorea, a nervous disease causing involuntary movements. At times, he was confined to a bed, and Warhol described this as influential in his development. As he passed the time drawing, listening to the radio, he put pictures of movie stars around his bed. As he got older, his parents encouraged his artistic development. They saved and sent him to the Carnegie Institute of Technology, now Carnegie Mellon University, and he earned his BFA in 1949. Later that year, he moved to New York to work in magazine illustration and advertising. His first commission was drawing shoes for Glamour magazine. Needless to say, pop culture was an important part of his formative years. But I really want to emphasize that it was 1949 as he was first striking it out and making his name in New York. There's a reason old people like me tend to continue listening to the music of our youth. The senses trigger an emotional response. During adolescence and early adulthood, people are venturing out away from home and forging their own identity. It's a time that is scary, but also exhilarating. And when we listen to the music or take in other bits of culture from that time in our youth, it triggers the emotions that we felt at that time. For Andy Warhol, that stage of life came in the late 1940s and early 1950s. That also coincided with the height of Marilyn Monroe's fame and popularity. In his famous Marilyn Monroe diptych, Andy Warhol used the image of Marilyn Monroe from her 1953 headshot. Now, a diptych, when we break it down, the die is indicating two. It's a two-paneled piece. Traditionally, diptychs would be associated with religious artworks in the Christian tradition. They often conveyed stories of the lives of saints, or they were portraits of significant religious figures. A diptych would be a portable altarpiece, hinged so that the artwork could be closed off and protected. Warhol's Marilyn Monroe diptych is a postmodern altarpiece. It was created just a few weeks after Monroe's untimely death, and in some ways it feels like a commentary on our celebrity-obsessed culture. 
She's an icon of pop culture, a face that graced the pages of every magazine and tabloid. She was a young girl, Norma Jean, who had been plucked from obscurity and celebrated around the world for her beauty. But outside the public view, she struggled with her mental health, failed relationships, and substance abuse. She was a martyr of the common culture's celebrity worship. In Warhol's diptych, we see 50 repetitions of her famous face. On one panel, there is shockingly bold underpainting, creating a cartoonish appearance. On the other, we see 25 black and white copies of the same shadows and contours, but without the garish color. There are varying degrees of intensity, some oversaturated with black, others fading to the ghost of an image. And yet with all of these, we never see the real Marilyn. We see only copies of a publicity still. The image of a star at the height of her fame and beauty, frozen in time and sent out for others to see and appreciate. The image primed for reproduction and distortion, for the artist and audience to project and see as they wish. I look at the diptych, and as an English speaker, I'm accustomed to reading from left to right, top to bottom. I see the extreme high contrast and bold colors on the left panel. She looks almost plastic, and indeed, when I show the image to students, they often compare her to Barbie. Then, looking across the diptych, we see the color fade. The image fades, as even the woman who was so famous and seemed larger than life, fades from the public view. Her image becomes a hazy memory. Now, after the break, I'm going to share my conversation with Melissa Sorensen from Speedball Art Materials, who shared how screen printing works, how the materials are made, and how we can make the most of the medium. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Now, to learn a little bit more about screen printing, how screens and inks and all of that fun stuff is made, I have Melissa Sorensen from Speedball Art Products, my go-to for all of my screen printing needs in my classroom. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kyle. I'm so happy to be here. I am really excited because I honestly, like when I first learned how to screen print and just how easy it could be in the classroom, it was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I just, I went all into it. I, I think went from testing it out with three or four students to 
um, having my parent organization order 500 t-shirts so I could have the whole school <laughs> screen printing. I I love it, but honestly, I've never actually studied screen printing. I was I was a painter. I learned lithography. I learned lots of different stuff, but not the screen. So hopefully, you'll be able to tell me a little bit more about how it works and why it why things work the way they do. Yes. First off, can you tell me a bit about just like, how do you make your screens, squeegees, inks, all that fun stuff? So um, screen printing ink in general is our kind of our bread and butter here. And we've been manufacturing that since the 1970s. But we want to make sure that we're always providing all the different types of tools that go along with that for those artists. So that gets into lots of different frames, lots of different squeegees. And um, that's, again, a bit about what that artist is trying to achieve. So if you're a textile artist or you're printing on t-shirts versus somebody who's creating a really cool gig poster, their inks are going to be different, their squeegees are going to be a little bit different, and their frames are going to be a little bit different. So we've got our portfolio from kind of our standard wood frame that's got a 110 mesh in it. And so that's just a fancy way to say that 110 little threads per hole. So it's pretty common and that most of your inks, our screen printing inks will go through that. But again, if you're that gig poster artist, you might be looking for a 305. So you just got a nice tiny layer of ink that goes through there um, on an aluminum frame. So it really varies um, all of our different tools of how they're made and who they're made for is dependent upon that artist. So as I'm hearing you saying the the print on paper, you're usually going for a higher mesh count, right? Like the, you said the 300 yeah. threads in that same area. Is that like to get more detail? Why would we want less ink? Yeah, that's a great question. So again, if you're a gig poster artist, so I'll um, use one of ours that is we just absolutely love. His name is James Flames. And, you know, he will do prints that are seven, nine colors, right? So when he's doing those, in order to achieve that one final print, he's going to want to be able to put just one, you know, um, thin layer down so that he builds upon that. But again, you wouldn't want it really thick because then it's going to mess with your image and things like that. And he'll also do that for a little bit of different color mixing and stuff. So when he wants that one thin layer, that might be different than a person who's trying to print a t-shirt and they actually want their ink to kind of soak into that substrate um, so they don't have that. They have that nice soft hand that comes across. So they're going to want more ink to come through to go on that fabric where it's on paper. It's not going to absorb as much as a t-shirt and so he wants to just put that real thin layer down especially if they're doing multiples yeah that that kind of makes sense you don't want too much ink you know blocking off the surface as you're doing those prints and then takes longer to dry it smears it's all sorts of different issues now back to the screens are they like i don't i don't even know how does that come together like are they stretched by hand are you do you have machines that are doing that kind of stuff yeah, so we do feel like we strike a really nice balance here at Speedball of having machines and people. So we obviously have equipment because we need to be an efficient manufacturing facility, but we are very high touch. And so again, that's a bit dependent. Our wood frames, um, we do have equipment that can 
put in the mesh, um, but it also has a cord and groove system. So if you look and turn over one of our wood frames, there's just a piece of foam core in there so that the artist or the user can replace that mesh at any time. That's a little bit different than our aluminum frames, which are pneumatically stretched, where if that does break, unfortunately, if that mesh does, that's gonna be not a do-it-yourself replacement. <laughs> Yeah, I'm embarrassed to admit the first year that I had uh, screen printing stuff, I did not realize how easy it is to take the cord out and replace it and ended up having to throw away like two or three screens because I didn't just didn't realize like you can swap it out if you need to. Um, so on the off chance there's someone as ignorant as me listening to this, all hope is not lost when someone just jams the squeegee through the screen you can replace it you can't just replace the mesh you bet uh now on the topic of the inks uh you know the inks that i'm using for screen prints they're not like other inks you know I, i've got the jars of india ink and stuff for drawing how are these inks different how are they made like what makes yours special you said that's your bread and butter so yeah. what do you all do there Again, um, I'll probably sound like a broken record, but just listening to the artists, right? So it's our job um, to understand what they're looking for when they're trying to print. And then we translate that. Um, obviously we do have a chemist and such on staff so that they can do that translation work, but it's really dependent upon the different features and benefits they want that ink to achieve, right? So if you're thinking about that drying ink, which we do manufacture here as well, um, you know, that viscosity of it's going through a, a pen nib is very different than if I'm trying to put it onto mesh. And even within our own inks, um, I've got a print in my office that says, uh, it's ink, not paint. So a lot of times people will confuse our our inks and say, oh, well, I love your paints. And they're very different. So paint is very different than ink and ink is also very different. Um, within screen printing, as an example, we have our acrylic ink and our fabric ink. And so that is meant to be formulated differently to achieve that features and benefits that you're trying to get. So back to that textile artist versus a gig poster artist, Right, so they're trying to get that thin layer on there onto that paper. It's very different what you need that ink to perform than if you're trying to do it on a t-shirt. So even within our own portfolio, our inks are different. Um, we manufacture relief inks or block printing inks. And so that ink needs to have a different type of tack, um, open time, dry time, there's opacity. There's so many different features and benefits that go into it. And so we just listen to our artists and try to translate appropriately. I well, I appreciate that you listen to the artists and I wish I had your sign that says it's ink and not paint <laughs> because I utter that so many times in my classroom. Um, it is definitely true because inks tend to be like you talked about that viscosity, the way that it can flow. Inks tend to be a little bit thinner and flow more smoothly than a paint. A paint tends to have those thicker molecules that are just going to sit on top of the surface. And I guess probably the block printing inks are probably the thickest, closest to a paint, but it's still a little bit different. Right. Absolutely. Now, if we can shift to 
just how we use these things. Um, can you give me just like a quick overview of like what is the process of screen printing? And I know that's kind of a loaded question because there's more than one process of screen printing there. But generally speaking, how is this whole thing working? Because I don't believe you when you first said it's magic. It feels <laughs> like it, but I think there's probably some science behind it. Yeah, there is a little bit of science, but you know, sometimes screen printing can be, you know, we find that people get really intimidated by it and it doesn't have to be. So um, to break it down, it really is just creating a stencil. And so there's lots of different ways to create stencils um, and we kind of formulate those. So, or we kind of break those down to be um, just as simple as a paper stencil. So I think, you know, in classrooms, like you were talking about um, in your own classroom for children, they can take a paper stencil um, and simply put that, attach that to our wood frame. And then at that juncture, when you've got a stencil, you're just putting ink through the, the mesh, you know, via the, the squeegee. So it seems like there's magic to it because every time somebody lifts up that frame and they actually see that they pulled a print, uh, those are what we call the butterflies, which is so amazing. But um, is really obtainable for a lot of different people. Now, we always say there's a little bit of a crawl before you run. A lot of people hear screen printing and they go right to photo emulsion, which is great because it does amazing things. Anything you can kind of, you know, have black and white photography on, you can create into a screen print. But um, it does have its pros and cons. Uh, you know, it's, if you're new to it, it can be a little bit intimidating, a little bit challenging because it's a little bit longer of a process. Um, and then in between that, we've got our drawing fluid and screen filler. So that is a really beautiful bridge between if you are a painter, it's okay, you use paints, and you want to get into screen printing, you know, that utilizes a brush um, and you can kind of draw your art or draw your stencil onto your screen. And so that's a really cool way to get a stencil as well. And probably the last one, which has um, been around just a couple, well, probably more years than I even realized, um, but is the use of vinyl now. So all the, the crickets and the silhouette and the brother machines out there. So we've found a really cool way to take the vinyl that you can use on the machines, you know, purchase that you already have, and use that as your stencil. So at the very premise of it, it's really, it is simple, um, but it is magic when you do it, but it's just creating that stencil lots of different ways. And then you put down that ink and pull your squeegee. Yeah, I I'll absolutely love it. I, I, I was having flashbacks as you talked about the easiest way is that paper stencil that you cut. And I still vividly remember the third graders who came into my, my classroom trying to escape the cold at recess time. And they said, we'll do any project you want. Just let us stay inside. And I was like, great. And they were my little art staff testing things before they were ready for prime time. And I remember them cutting just construction paper, folded in half, cut a hole in the middle, and the screen holds that stencil in place. And now I do have the more sophisticated setup with um, my Cameo Silhouette Cutter that cuts the, the plastic stencils and stuff. I don't use vinyl because they sell um, plastic stencils, which I can tape on and then take Perfect. off, which is fantastic. Yes. But for those who aren't familiar, you had mentioned photo emulsions and the drawing fluid, which basically mask off stuff within the mesh itself, as I understand it, right? Yes, um, you got it. Now, for those who are listening, they might be wondering, 
If I'm using that masking fluid, is that permanently in the mesh or can I take it out later, clean it and use this for something else? Yes, so with that drawing fluid and screen filler, so you're drawing fluid at the the blue part that you're painting onto your mesh that is water soluble. So once you apply your screen filler, which is kind of your blocker and you have your stencil, you can print with that and then we call it reclaiming. So you can reclaim your screen. You can not have to, if you want to keep that screen as is, you can, but um, you ha we have a product called Speed Clean, which is designed specifically to remove screen filler from your screen. And I appreciate that you give it the um, the names that even I can understand. Um, thinking about this artistic process with screen printing, you know, in the first segment, I talked a little bit about Andy Warhol and he was screen printing in a way that it, it feels like nothing else I've seen from others. You know what I mean? Like normally I am so focused on trying to get it so neat and precise. And he went the other way. Can yes. you like how how was he doing that with the the mix of colors and everything like that in his work? Yeah, I mean, obviously very iconic <laughs> and is his work as well. And I think that, you know, what that really speaks to is that it doesn't have to be perfect, right? It doesn't have to be something that you're trying to almost like recreate a, a, a print image, if you will. So what he was able to to show is that you can definitely, you know, have colors. Obviously, his one Marilyn Monroe with um, created with five different screens, but they don't have to be all lined up and registered. It doesn't have to be the same. So I think that again is the magic of it is that don't, we always tell people, don't be afraid to make a mistake. And so just to, just to draw out some of the details that you, you alluded to there, cause I always like to make the subtext text here. Um, you were saying he was using different colors, experimenting with the different colors, but also each color is its own screen. You're basically printing with one color, right? That has one stencil and another color has another stencil and another has another. And when you talk about registration marks, um, can you can you tell our audience what are the registration marks? Why would we use registration marks? Yes, so that's a great question. So when you are, if you're going to do, for instance, um, I'll go back to James Flames, hopefully he's okay with me using him. Um, when you're gonna create a seven color print, right? And you do have that ultimate design that you have in mind. So you have to register or essentially basic terms, line it up to make sure that if you are going to print, you typically will go the lightest color all the way to the darkest. Um, some gig poster artists will use the term key lines and that's their last color, which is typically black that frames out everything. And so you're going to go light to dark and you're going to, whether you have those colors mixed together or they're their own separate one, um, and that's a lot of times that gets into the, the creation of the artwork where you will, but you're basically separating the layers of the colors that you're going to put together. And then when you bring those layers back together, you have to register them. You have to make sure that they're in line. So registration can be as simple as you put down your piece of paper and you line up where exactly it's going to go with maybe a painter's tape or a marking and that way you're always putting that same screen because there will be multiple screens in that same place that lines up with your substrate yeah um and so like the registration like you said it's just the it's just the way of aligning things so they they match up and on a very simple like 
what I do on my screens to help kids when I'm screen printing t-shirts, I put a little piece of blue painter's tape at the top of the screen, right in the middle, and I tell them, line that up with the tag on the t-shirt so you know it's going to be centered and it's not going to be upside down and all of that sort of stuff. Smart, yes. It's just little tips and tricks like that. Um, you know, even when people always ask, like, where do I put the design in the t-shirt? Where should it go? I mean, there's a rule of thumb, like three fingers. If you actually even like a, the t-shirt I'm wearing, there's always from the collar down, three fingers, most average three fingers. That's kind of where you start your print. Um, but again, when you're doing something with children who love ink everywhere, or if it's something you got seven colors, you're gonna wanna make sure you're putting that, that you have some type of indicator of whether I'm switching screens or I'm switching to another child printing, uh, making sure everybody can line it up correctly. I love that, thank you. Any other tips or tricks uh, that you wanna share to wrap this up? Just start um, and don't expect perfection. That's our biggest thing is that um, we want you to experience the butterflies, whether you're new to screen printing or I think even if we asked all of our screen printing artists out there, you when you put down that ink and you pull the squeegee and you lift up your frame, it is still always joy and excitement that you saw that you pulled that print. And so that would just be not necessarily a tip or trick, but um, just go for it. Just experience that magic. Love that. And um, I'm going to just share one last thing because the teacher in me knows that a lot of my listeners are also teachers. And one trick that I have found is I always have a couple of jars of the neon and glow in the dark speedball fabric ink because when I am doing a demonstration or I'm trying to help a kid and it goes wrong, which happens maybe 1% of the time, but still enough that I, I will admit by having the glow in the dark or um, neon ink on hand, I can tell the kids like, I'm going to help you and you're going to get the special glow in the dark version. And we're going to make this better. And all the tears stop and suddenly it's bragging rights for them. So yes. <laughs> um, thank you so much for making that product that gets me out of the bad feelings of knowing that I ruined a kid's day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. We do have, this is probably for your teachers listening, they'll probably be like, no, Melissa, but um, new to our portfolio as of recently is glitter. And um, so when we talked about mesh counts, right, you have to have a pretty fine uh, particulate of glitter to go through that 110, but that's a nice feature that seems to really get the kids' eyes um, perked up. And then also a puff modifier. So you could add a puff modifier glitter to that night glow or neon uh, oh. portfolio. <laughs> Oh, so now I've got something else I've got to buy. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, thank you once again, Melissa Sorensen from Speedball Art Materials. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. ArtSmart is written, recorded, mixed, and edited by me, Kyle Wood. The background music you've been enjoying was created by Less FM, Coma Media, and Music Unlimited. Special thanks this week to Melissa Sorensen of Speedball Art Materials. If you want to learn more about Speedball inks and other art supplies, check the links in the show notes. ArtSmart is an Airwave Media podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to learn more, check out my other podcast, Who Arted or 
go to the website artsmartpodcast.com for more free resources.